Welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. My name is David Breer. And I'm Laura Watkins. On today's show, me and Laura are going to be taking a bit of a deep dive through the world of challenger banks. What are they? Who are they challenging? And how far have they come to date? We'll also look at what the future holds and what the term challenge bank really means. Uh, So David, how do you define a challenger bank? How would you describe it? For me, really, it's a bit of a grudge match. Uh, Like I always kind of look at the ones who have got a bit of a chip on their shoulder of either they've worked in an industry, they've worked in financial services, and really they know where the industry sucks. You know, so for me, the, the places where I really see challenges is about going from a big established organization to something that's actually being challenging. I I think it's that old adage of David versus Goliath, really, for me. Nice. So any element of someone doing the challenging is a challenger bank? Pretty much. Great. So with that in mind, we spoke to some exciting people within the challenger bank landscape to find out how they define a challenger bank and if they even agree with the term challenger. First up, we have Anthony Thompson, former chairman of Metro Bank and Atom Bank, some of the earliest challenger banks in the UK, actually. Well, I'm not very keen on any of these nomenclatures, challenger, neobank or whatever. I suppose challenges are nearest you're going to get in the sense that the purpose is to take on the status quo, to take on the big guys. The problem and opportunity for me are, are the same thing. I think in, in banking in the UK, and I've seen the same thing all around the world, same in Australia, banks have lost sight of their original purpose. They think that they exist purely to make money. They've lost sight of the customer. And I believe passionately that profit is a byproduct of giving the customer a better product or a better service or a better experience. Then, if you run your business efficiently, you will be profitable. It's not a term that we often use, honestly, because I think it can mean so many things to so many people. You get sort of Santander coming out calling themselves a challenger bank. It's sort of like, I think the term just gets diluted. This is Tom Blomfield, CEO and co-founder of Monzo. The way I really look at the new banks, and by, by new banks, I mean the, the sort of banks who've been licensed after the 2013 banking license reforms, which made it, you know, sort of streamline the application process. I think there are about 15 new banks, let's say. And I think you can divide them into broadly two categories. I think there are the savings and loans companies, people like Charter Court and Mast Haven and Oak North, who on the liability side, take fixed term deposits from customers, one year, two year term deposits paying an attractive interest rate, and then deploy those deposits into assets like mortgages or, or commercial loans. And they, they're savings and loans companies really. And then there are the people more like us at the other end of the spectrum who really are balance sheet light, but focus much more on customer interface, much more on, um, you know, our, our customers might open the app uh, 12 or 15 times a week, really heavy on customer service, user experience, brand, delighting customers, really not price driven at all. We don't pay interest rates. Oh, the word challenger bank. <laughs> I, I remember a dinner, right? This must be about 18 months, two years ago. This is Anne Bowden, CEO and co-founder of Starling. I think Chris Skinner was there as well. And we all sat around and decided we didn't like the word challenger bank. And I think everybody was there. Well, she was there. Sort of Ricky was there. We were all sitting there. And we were all deciding that challenger bank wasn't the name for us. And we decided we were going to be called, I think, digital only or digital first banks or whatever. But the challenger name was stuck. And it means different things to different people. It means a whole range of banks. Uh, but I think that challenger for me means, well... People who really question, people who really think, 
what's best for consumers, what's best for customers, what can we do to shake things up, Mm -hmm. Um, never being satisfied, always being prepared to go a little bit further to make something really good for consumers. I mean, a challenger bank is a bit of a loose term, I think, so it depends on the context, what market you're looking at. This is Oscar William Groot, senior reporter at Business Insider. In the UK, at least, I think a challenger bank is anyone who's outside of the big four. So anyone who's not RBS, Lloyds, HSBC or Barclays. Okay, so as you can hear, the definitions are pretty broad, and most of them don't even like the term challenger for starters, preferring digital only or digital first, as Anne mentioned, or disliking the terminology completely, like Tom. One thing they all agree on, though, is they are all aiming at the big banks, whether that just be the top four, as Oscar suggests, or any bank that isn't digital only, as Tom and Anne allude to. And to Anthony's point, they're all trying to be better in some way to provide a better service and user experience than traditional banks for the benefit of their customers. So at 11FS, we love to talk about what we call the banking battlefield. Um, David, can you explain to our listeners what exactly we mean by that and where the challenger banks currently sit within that and how far they've come to date? Well, there's a lot in there. So let's uh, see where we get to. So, well, from my perspective, the battlefield that financial services is embroiled in today is more fraught than ever, really. If you look against two axes that we draw out quite often, the number of customers and the level of intelligent digital services that people actually have, you get a pretty interesting view. It used to just be the big banks. This was bank on bank sort of competition in this space. And we've already heard, though, that there are challenges now popping up which, although have small customer bases, are growing rapidly week in week. I think it's important to state that everything that holds back those big incumbent organizations, whether that be legacy thinking or technology or the customers or the culture, really aren't holding back the challenger organizations. Um, I think it comes back to, I think it's Andreessen Horowitz that said the, the battle between every startup and incumbent comes down to whether the startup gets distribution before the incumbent gets innovation. And I think we've seen that in many different guises now within banking. I think really for, for the financial services industry, the quote probably goes along the lines of the banking battlefield comes down to whether the startups can actually scale and have real impact on the market and the industry really before the incumbent just gets their shit together. And honestly, I really don't know the answer to that question. Um, on one side, we have the challenges where, and the benefit to the challenges is that you know, banks are pretty dark and full of terrors, meaning challenging and changing their culture to be competitive is going to take a really, really long time. On the side of the banks, though, they have all the money and all of the customers, which for anybody's benefit, I think is probably an advantage. I guess the real sort of factor to sort of play into this is while the challenges and the incumbents sort of playing with one another and really sort of understanding either how collaboration or competition works, um, we have the, the sort of Godzilla in the background of our Pay or Amazon or Apple coming through and destroying everybody, having more customers and more branding and more money to spend. So I think one thing that's for sure, whether it be the challenges, whether it be the incumbents, whether it be big non-FS digital players, there really is only one major winner in the, at this stage, and that's the customer. So with all this in mind, what actually is the ultimate goal of a challenge bank? What is their USP? And what can challenges do that banks can't, other than, you know, use MacBooks and emojis in communications? We spoke to the right people to tell us more. Back in 2007, when I first had the idea for Metro Bank, 
looking at the market data, what it told me then and still tell me today is that what matters to customers is value. And back in the 2007, the banks perceived that to just mean price. And if you delve into what value means to customers, price is part of it, but so is service, so is convenience, so is transparency, so is consistency, whole bunch of things, an amalgam of things. And what we realized at the time was the banks were focusing on one element, price, but not the service, not the convenience, not the transparency, not the uh, simplicity. So I think everything starts with the customer. All of the great businesses today are customer focused. I think just some of the older businesses have lost sight of this. So I think the challenge that the challenges have, to, to, to use your phrase, is not about can they produce a, a better, more efficient bank, not about can they produce a differentiated range of products. It's can they get the capital to allow them to scale to become sustainable businesses. The first time I heard myself say the words um, that I was starting a bank, I was on a cruise ship. Um, I was on holiday and, you know, sort of sitting on deck, you know, sort of, you know, having a nice cool drink. And, um, and somebody asked me what I did for a living. And I looked up and I said, I'm starting a bank. <laughs> and this guy said to me, well, we have so many of those, too many of those. What are you going to do? And then I had to think about what's going to be the difference about the bank I was going to start was going to go call Starling. And I think that um, when you unpeel what we're really doing is that, you know, my story is a bit different from lots of other sort of mm -hmm. startup bank founders. Um, I'd spent 35 years in the industry running banks and, and, and transforming banks. I knew very well that we'd pushed it as far as it could go. Mm -hmm. We needed a new business model. We needed a new way of engaging with customers. Technology had changed. People had changed. There was so much going for starting again. So I quit to start a new bank. Um, and the new banking model is a new way of engaging with customers, new set of technology, producing something that brings together somebody's financial life and really is on the side of the, of the customer in bringing all the new things that have been developed in the last sort of 20, 30 years, and specifically in the last five years, to consumers and small businesses in a very delightful way. Earlier this year, we did some big, big changes at Starling in which we, we, we got ourselves ready for this big iteration of delivery. Um, not to get too technical, but we started working on separating the actual user from the account holder, mm -hmm. which meant that we could actually deliver a huge amount of functionality very, very fast. For example, it only took us, say, I think it was three and a half weeks mm -hmm. um, to deliver um, joint accounts. We can start delivering very, very fast and we can allow lots of new different types of accounts, lots of different types of accounts and lots of different connections between the two. So exciting times to come. Our customers love to see lots of new things and um, well, wandering through our marketplace is like going through a, an interesting market where you see all the best goods on display, um, something different, something enticing, something that can really make your financial life better. I think it was Alex Rampell at Andreessen Horowitz who said that the sort of challenges do the, do the incumbents get innovation before the before the challenges get distribution, which is sort of a, a really pithy way of putting it, I think. But honestly, I think the the big high street banks in particular, if we go back to that um, sort of spectrum of 
are you a savings and loans company or are you a, a sort of financial hub? I don't think that the high street incumbents have really understood that actually. And I think they're trying to do everything very badly and they're constrained by legacy technology and a massive branch network and just really product centric thinking. And I don't mean product is it the way Facebook says product. I mean, the way HSBC thinks about product. I talked to a lady um, a, f- a few years ago now who was from one of the big banks and I asked her what she did. And she said, I'm the international credit card person. My job is to encourage the use of credit cards internationally. And I sort of scratched my head and went, that's sort of an interesting, interesting role. What's the, what problem are you trying to solve? And this lady smiled and she said, well, when our customers use credit cards internationally, we earn more fees. <laughs> and I just looked back and I said, that's, that's just not the question I asked. What, what customer problem are you trying to solve? And this lady looked back at me and said, no one has ever asked me that question before. And so that, I think, is the first problem. You're so kind of P&L focused, like optimizing the revenue or the cost on a P&L line without really thinking um, about customer needs. And so what banks sometimes do then is, you know, create a, a sort of... Um, You'll know the phrase better than me, a digital challenger, effectively. They'll put some money aside and hire a flashy consultancy, a project manager. Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately you don't set out on a task as ambitious and hard as building a bank unless your end goal is to become a huge billion-dollar business that can rub up against HSBC or whoever. Clearly, I think that's the ultimate ambition. Whether or not they can achieve that, I think that's a different question. I think ultimately... It's more likely that a lot of these businesses will be acquired like, say, Egg Bank was in the early 2000s. You know, that was an early uh, attempt to be an online-only bank. It got to about, I think, a million customers. You know, that was their cap, and they got acquired. And then they, you know, they leaned on the resources of their acquirer. But, yeah, ultimately, I think the ones that are around today, they wouldn't have set out on this path unless they wanted to be big banks themselves. So Starling have just launched joint accounts as well as business accounts. Monzo have current accounts and are beginning to look at business accounts. However, arguably, these are similar products to those you get from any incumbent. Is there more to challenges than rolling out the same products as traditional players, just with better UX and a nice app? What do you think, David? Well, I don't think it's just a better UX and a nice app. I think there's definitely a bit of an arms race coming down the line when we look back on those things. But I think what we're starting to see really is pretty much like a marathon. You know, this is where the pack really sort of breaks away. I honestly think we're seeing, you know, really right now is way beyond just features and functionality. It, it comes down to purpose. Each of the brands that are being established right now are, are doing different things, you know, creating around a community, creating purpose in terms of actually what they're doing. In addition to that, though, I think that sort of continuing that marathon metaphor, I think what Starling, Monzo and Revolut particularly are doing is setting a a pace that the incumbent organizations just can't follow. Um, We're seeing new features in weeks end to end. You know, we're seeing releases up to eight to 10 of those a day. You know, this is doing anything and everything and really sort of putting in, putting their customers actually in control. Fundamentally for me, the challenges are, are really technology firms with a very thin layer of bank. While the big banks, really are big old fat wedges of bank with very thin layers of technology. And I think this is going to be a, a real telling time in terms of actually the, the pace of change within this over the next six to 12 months, really. So we challenged the challenges with this same question, and obviously they had a lot to say on this one. But I think there's the risk of the, uh, you know, the old Waldo Emerson quote, if you invent a better mousetrap, the world will beat a path to your door. That's not exactly what he said. 
And I think there are a lot of businesses out there who think they've built a better mousetrap, but uh, there's not actually the consumer demand for what they have. And I think we will see some of the banks will succeed. I think some of them will not be so successful and will be bought up by others, and some will fail. Well, we're not actually replicating the features. We're making them much, much better. Since when have you opened a traditional joint bank account on your sofa? You know, so we do things a bit different at Starling. Um, it's all about great experience. It's all about doing everything the incumbents do and everything the fintechs do, but doing them with a twist, much better, in a way that's elegant, that people really want to engage with. Well, so I suppose the first wave of challenges were more about challenger brands rather than necessarily challenger business models. So the likes of Metro, Santander, Virgin Money were simply about doing similar things, but with a new brand, with the idea that actually choice competition is a good thing for any market. So that in itself is a challenge. These days, it's more about delivery methods. So Obviously, mobile and online has become the massive innovation. And so the Monzos, the Starlings, their big play is that they can challenge the incumbents because they'll have lower overheads. They won't have a branch network. And that will allow them to ultimately beat the incumbents on price. At least that's the, the ultimate ambition. So scaling quickly and fast product rollout is a huge part of what sets challenges apart from the incumbents, as you just said, and so did Tom and Anthony. Um, But can this be maintained long term? Is there ever a chance the big banks might catch up? What do you think? I guess this really is the the trillion pound question. And to be honest, I really don't know. We're going to have to wait and see how this one plays out. I I think for sure the banks can't really continue to do the same thing and expect a different outcome. You know, in this new banking battlefield, really, it requires new techniques, new processes to either maintain the advantages that they've got or really work in the way that they need to. Um, The biggest inhibitor to the banks, though, really isn't technology. definitely sure isn't regulation, particularly in the UK, Um, it comes down to their employees. I think if you change the way you do change, then I think the empire has a shot of striping back in this one. The incumbent banks have tens of millions of customers, Okay, so we have a long way to go before we hit that at that point. I very much hope that the culture and the fact that we built, you know, this infrastructure, you know, sort of in 2018 rather than 2078 means that we can keep on going. Um, So I believe that we have a long way to go mm-hmm. before people start asking that question seriously. Mm-hmm. And um, I think between now and then, we will give you know the, the incumbents a run for their money. I think certainly the challenger banks face a big problem in that as they scale, they will run up against a lot of the problems that the big banks have. Obviously, they don't have the problems with legacy infrastructure and you'd hope they don't have the problems with sort of legacy thinking. But the bigger you get, you do face problems around reputational risk. Everything just becomes a bit slower because your systems are bigger and it does inevitably slow down the rate at which you can sustainably launch new products. Um, So I think they will face problems as they scale. And conversely... The big banks are investing huge amounts of resources in trying to catch up to the speed of innovation that the smaller challengers have. So Lloyd's is committed to spend £3 billion on digital transformation. 
Uh, we've already seen HSBC with their new um, sort of open banking app that went from sort of idea to execution in, you know, under a year, which is unheard of for most big banks. So there's signs that they're catching up while the challengers may run into uh, some quagmires. And in a weird way, that's sort of the ideal scenario, because if the challengers are running into these problems, it means they're scaling successfully. And if the incumbents are committing these resources, it means that they've ruffled, the challengers have ruffled their feathers. So they're doing something right. It's positive for the consumers. Recently, challenger banks' losses and profitability are making lots of headlines, and we've discussed this at length on many other Fintech Insider news shows. Monzo's losses have quadrupled in the last year, and recently there's headlines that Atom's losses have increased to 52 million. But on the flip side, it's also been reported that the UK challenges aim to be profitable by 2020 or sooner. Simon Van Scalina from Monzo on a recent show said that despite headlines saying Monzo will be profitable in 2019, Tom Blomfield is a for 2018 if they can. So getting it into the black is a top priority. How do they plan on achieving this? And how long can challenger banks actually operate at a loss before it becomes a problem? I'm pretty old-fashioned on this one, if I'm honest with you. I believe a business should be making money, but I really get the VC approach. You know, This is about scaling and creating a community and a customer base ahead of monetizing that. And I really sort of get where they're going. We're seeing good progress, I think particularly from Monzo on the customer base side of things. Um, and it really kind of comes down to how quickly will the VCs that are funding these challenger banks uh, want to start seeing the returns in terms of what they're putting in. All new businesses go through a loss-making period before they're profitable. You know, whether that is a bank, whether that's a tech company, or whether that's any new sort of trading business. So it is not unexpected to have a period of losses before you actually turn to profit. Um, we at Starling didn't do a prepaid prior to having a banking license. So we've never had this really huge dip before our recovery. We are hoping to become profitable ourselves, you know, late 2019, early 2020. I think that a lot of our competitors will be the same. We definitely have a plan to profitability. We are creating, um, we have a variety of sources of revenue which support each other, all on a foundation of having built a bank infrastructure from scratch. Mm -hmm. And it's been a long journey. We're nearly five years old. It's been a long time getting to where we are. We think about short term and long term. And before I dive into revenue, I just want to touch on cost. The prepaid card was extremely expensive for us to run. It was something like £65 per user per year. We're now down to about 5 or £6 per user per year, average across the entire customer base. And let's be fair, that's £65 compares to a benchmark of around 250 for a tier one bank to run a current account, not a prepaid account. Yeah, I've seen benchmarks between about 150 and 250 um, And so the £65 was fine, um, but now the, the absolute cost is something like 15 quid, and the net, the net cost when you net off all the kind of interchange that you get sort of for free, basically, it ends up netting to about five or six pound loss across the customer base, which we are absolutely delighted with mm -hmm. from, you know, 10 months ago at negative 65. New, new cohorts are now contribution margin positive, again, almost entirely based on cost reduction. So the short term, short to medium term plan to, to really grow that contribution margin is to increase revenue and that's unsecured consumer lending. Well, there's a, there's a bigger question that sits behind that, uh, if I may suggest it, which is, how much capital is actually available? And uh, it's not the easiest thing to describe, but if, if you imagine the pool of capital is a very big balloon, yeah. you say that's the amount of capital that's available for new bank startups. 
But then you take out of that those investors who cannot or are not mandated to invest in uh, non-public stocks, the size of that balloon shrinks. If you then take out of it those who cannot or will not invest in businesses that are more than 18 months away from a liquidity event, it shrinks further. If you then take away the capital providers who won't invest in loss-making businesses, it starts to become a very small balloon. You then take out those investors who won't invest in pre-revenue businesses, and it's a very, very small balloon indeed. So the pool of capital for startup banks is actually not that big, and there are a number of people trying to take capital out of that pool at the moment. So operating at a loss, at least initially, seems to be expected, as Anne mentions. And costs per customer is lowering all the time. You know, we've seen Monzo's go from £65 to £5, which is nothing compared to the big bank's cost per customer. So if we're looking at scaling fast and cheap customer acquisition being a key aspect of challenger banks, next we want to take a look at the non-banking challengers or the challengers to challengers. Uh, these include players such as Venmo in the US or Revolut who offer banking-like services but without a banking license. If we revisit your banking battlefield theme, how is this being shaken up by non-banking challengers if they can offer banking services without actually being a bank? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I think um, you know we, we've seen such a, a change within various different geographies from a regulatory perspective that has actually allowed many people to kind of come in. You know, there are many players and, and many of the the challenger banks themselves. Somebody like Monzo originally was using a third party called GPS for all of their payment processing, so not using their license at all to actually establish themselves as a bank. Um, and I think this will continue. Really, I think um, you know one of the best things that we've actually seen really is the lowering of the barrier of entry to become a financial services player while still ensuring that their customer is really, really protected. Um, and I think that really is the the critical piece in terms of that, because without that protection for the customer, then actually it's going to continually lead to problems down the line. By no means are we at the cryptocurrency space yet, but uh, I do think that uh, you know we're seeing whole scale innovations coming through because actually people can get to market quicker. How important is it to have a banking license then? Uh, it really depends on what you want to do. You know, somebody like Revolut really at this stage doesn't require one. You know, Monzo got to market and scaled up to, I think it was three or 400,000 customers at the time. It really didn't need a banking license. I think it only gets to be a complication at the point where you start to need to do more than just giving people access to what looks and feels and acts like a current account. At the point where you want to have a balance sheet and you want to start doing lending, i.e., you want to become reasonably profitable because lending is where most people make lots of money, um, then actually it's the type of thing that you really need to look at doing. Um, but it isn't, still isn't necessary because essentially for people who want to play within financial services but don't want to be a bank, you know, not just the likes of challenger banks, but potentially for much broader players, whether it be people within the retail space or airliners or whoever, then actually this is a really good option to get into this space on the back of a community or a brand that you have um, without going to all of the pain to have uh, 5,000 people worrying about regulation. What is the possible impact on challenger banks if there can be so many players coming into what you might call their space? 
from my perspective, I, I don't think the market will sustain all of these different players. Um, you know, I think it's similar to many other markets where you see a, a flurry of innovation. Then actually what happens is the, the customer decides. You know, there is really only so many customers to go around. And with that in mind, then they will choose the winners pretty quickly. Um, you know, I think it will be a very interesting one to see actually whether the, the VC and kind of investment starts to dry up around, uh, particularly in the retail challenger bank space which is pretty heavily uh, saturated now. So, you know, at the point where VC money starts drying up and where customers are really sort of favoring three or four of the, the major players in this space, then actually I think you'll probably start to see disruption moving on to another, another business line, potentially even SME banking. So is there anything that challenger banks can do that non-challenger banks can't apart from the obvious kind of banking services? Yeah. Well, you know, I think the balance sheet one is the major one, really. Uh, At the point where actually you're holding the money yourself and actually it's not being held by a, you know, a third party and a a bank for you, then um, then I I believe that opens up your opportunities to to do a lot more. That said, if you kind of look at players like, you know, Amazon or Apple or even players like, you know, Simple over in in the US, um, they're able to achieve so much without actually having a banking license because, you know, they can get very, very close without actually straying into the the, the sort of realms of the, the regulatory space. With that in mind, as a customer, do you actually need a bank at that point then, if you can get so much from a non-banking player? You know, it's a, a well-trodden saying, but I think we, we definitely need banking, but we might not need banks. So looking ahead to the future, what will or could the banking landscape look like in the next five to ten years? I think in terms of the challenger banks we see, I think there'll be fewer independent digital challenger banks. I think we'll see consolidation both in terms of the big incumbents buying some of these startups. Overseas banks looking to get into the UK may see it as a good way to break into the market. And unfortunately, I just think, you know, some will fail. That's the nature of startups. You know, not all of them will survive. Um, what's interesting in terms of the future of challenger banks is look at something like Marcus by Goldman Sachs in the US. They're staffing up to launch that in the UK now. That is a startup digital only bank backed by a massive investment bank. And it points to an interesting trend in that uh, the reason they've launched that is that the traditional investment banking earning streams are, have been weaker in recent years. And uh, regulators are also keen for the big banks to diversify their capital pools. So it ticks a lot of boxes for somebody like Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs have always been a very innovative and forward-thinking bank. So they may be the first of others. You know, we may see uh, Morgan Stanley launch that in the, in the U.S., we may see Citibank or Bank of America, other people like that. And once they have something successful in their local market, digitally, it's very easy to just roll that across. So, you know, the Monzos may be rubbing up against the Goldman Sachs or the Morgan Stanley's of the world in five or 10 years time, which is a very different challenge to taking on Lloyd, say, or Barclays. So in five or six or seven years time, I really think we're heading towards this hub and spoke model, this control center, or this marketplace or platform, or all these generic terms. I think we need a new name for it, actually. A smart bank, I think, is a bit naff. Mm-hmm. Um, Challenger Bank has been co-opted by a, a 
Santander. For me, I can see it so clearly, this idea that you have this single place that you go, you can see all of your money. So account aggregation, basically, you have some really intuitive, what used to be called PFM, telling you how much you've got left uh, to spend this month, where your money's gone, maybe some tips on how to optimize your investments and savings, just this full visibility of all of your money, and then one touch control of all of it. That's sort of the vision. And it's so, so clear that A, this is entirely possible now, but B, when mainstream customers see this, I think it will be an epiphany moment where they just go, why would I not want this? I think it will save the average person two or three thousand pounds a year. Just admin, you know, just this boring stuff that we know we should do as adults and we typically don't do because we're too busy, that I think we can automate it away and give people control and peace of mind and hard cash, two or three grand. And I don't think the average adult is going to say, no, I prefer to switch my gas electricity manually every year. Thank you very much. All of this is assuming that the banking landscape stays approximately as it is. The big elephant in the room, which is always looming over the space, as we've kind of alluded to already, is the tech giants. So what happens if GAFA and the other tech giants come out to play in the banking space? Could that completely change the state of play on the banking battlefield? What do you think? I think pretty much. You know, I think we could be in a situation where actually one of those those major players can, can either via uh, absolute brute force or by a stealth uh, really sort of get into this market. You know, we see so many different statistics coming out about various different places that Apple Pay are being accepted or used or, you know, only a couple of weeks ago being in New York, seeing Alipay accepted in the back of every taxi that was out there. You know, so I, I think we're, we're seeing this Maybe the big tech giants right now are just not being so overt about going into financial services. You know, we have seen players like Apple being very close to to buying big credit card companies to to sort of move into this space and also have a an army of people to actually manage that regulatory problems for them. But I think so long as they can, I think they'll stay out of the reg space. Well, I think that they're playing that they will make a serious inroads into the money space, but whether or not. They want to go through all of the regulatory challenge of becoming a bank, all of the capital that they need to hold against it, when they can just uh, take away very, very profitable bits of the banking sector, which they're doing already. Let's take the US tech companies. I think they are really nibbling at the edges of of retail financial services. So they're doing things like peer-to-peer payments or Amazon are releasing a plastic card, but they're doing so not because they want to provide core banking services, but because there's a massive underbanked population in the US and they want them to be able to purchase on Amazon. It's very hard if you don't have a plastic card. Um, How can we bolster our core business by picking bits off around the edges of financial services to make our core product offerings stronger? And so for Facebook, clearly that's peer-to-peer payments. I think all competition is good. Mm -hmm. I think that... Um, fair competition is very, very good. I think we have to think, consider um, how far big tech will push it mm-hmm. uh, before regulation stops them. Mm-hmm. But I think that having new players, having competition will stir everything up. Mm-hmm. It will change the landscape and all of us will respond well. As far as big tech's concerned, I think we have to question whether they will go as far as having a banking license. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, the danger is that they go very, very far towards it, but don't go over the line to becoming a bank and have certain scale advantages and customer proposition advantages mm-hmm. from that. That's probably good for big tech. It's not good for consumers and it's not good for small business. Mm-hmm. So I think this point 
the regulators have to step in, the competition authorities have to step in, and government has to step in to make sure it's a fair competition. I think it really depends on what we mean by the tech giants moving in uh, and into what areas they look to move into. Because Facebook and Google have tried in the past to launch money sending services that are, exist within their own ecosystem. So, you, you know, you can send cash through Gmail and things like that. And largely those innovations haven't worked because they require people to completely overhaul how they think about money uh, and to think about it purely within the existing services that these incumbents are trying to offer. So where things have been the most successful is where there is an obvious pain point that is being solved. So Venmo solves an obvious pain point using technology. Apple Pay, again, it's the delivery method. Everyone wants to do everything on their smartphone. And so it's not the fact that it's Apple. It's more the fact that, yes, I can just pay with my smartphone. That makes sense. That's what I want to do. So I think it's a bit complex, the idea of the, the, the big tech guys. I think they have the resources and the know-how to challenge um, banks on sort of discrete financial services. But I don't think they necessarily will be able to steamroll a bank's simply by dent of being, you know, Google or Apple or whoever. I think we can infer that everyone assumes that just because the tech giants could get into banking, it doesn't mean that they will, by which we mean in a literal sense, so with a banking license and fully compliant to regulation. Uh, from what those guys were saying, they seem to believe that the regulators will either not allow them to play in this space or that they won't want to comply with banking regulations, which could be limiting for them. Does that make it more interesting going forward or does it just add more uncertainty? I really think it depends on who you are. Like if you're a challenger bank, it brings about certain pressures because actually you're all trying to establish a brand, you're trying to establish a community. If you're a big incumbent organization, it gives you the fear of God because actually you could have somebody who's bigger than you coming into your market and you know really being able to disintermediate you from your customers without really being able, having to, to sort of stress too far into, into the industry. So for me, actually, what it does is it kind of brings the pressure to all of these different players within the, the banking battlefield right now to step their game up, whether it's a new organization coming in who have to fight for life and fight for customers, or whether it's a, an incumbent organization really rekindling the love that they had for customer centricity. So I do think it's quite an exciting one, but for me, it, it just means it's a better place to work. Nice. So everyone should be a little bit afraid, but that should drive competition and make them up their game. Pretty much. And ultimately, that should be better for customers, right? I think ultimately that ends up being the best thing out of all of this. I think you're in a situation where, you know, customers are being given new capability and new services and people are, are vying for actually delivering things that they will value. That has to be a good thing. Sounds good to me. So what is the future for challenger banks? Will they change the face of banking for good? In your in your view, uh, personally, I think they already have. I, I think um, I don't believe that actually the the impact for them is purely about the amount of customers that they have. Um, I think the reaction that we've actually seen by the incumbent organisations to step their game up means that the impact is being felt way broader than just from a customer perspective. I think the impact that the challenger banks have had really is not just on the banks, but actually majorly into the suppliers to to big incumbent traditional organisations as well. Because when you can have a challenger bank with 20 people creating something amazing like Monzo did, uh, then actually it's very hard to justify 5,000 consultants from...
to work for three years to do a thing? I don't think there is a single answer to that. I think, for example, there were, there is always this kind of creative destruction that new people come along, eat away at uh, bits of the bigger businesses. Um, I don't think we're going to see a category disruptor. I don't think we're going to see somebody who comes along and kills the the Barclays and the Lloyds and the Santanders and the BBBAs of this world. But what I, I think we will see is that there will be some people who take bits of their business and just do it more efficiently. You know, the big banks, for all of their problems and their issues and their challenges, do have huge customer franchises. Customers stay with them. People talk, banks talk about as loyalty. I think it's inertia, but whatever it is, customers do stay with them. The banks have very big balance sheets and they have the funding available to change the nature of their businesses. So whilst I don't think in general they give customers a great deal, they have a lot going for them and the ability, should they choose to do it over a period of time, to change and respond to customer needs. But I think we'll see more and more new entrants. And as we talked about it a few minutes ago, uh, some will succeed hugely. Some will have a modicum of success. Some will just drift along and some will fail. So the ones that succeed will be the ones that raise the two or 300 million pounds of capital uh, and the ones that don't won't because the providers of capital are not perhaps quite as altruistic as you and I might be. Um, so there is that dilemma, which is you want to build a great customer outcome. The providers of capital want to reduce their risk and get to profitability. So it's, uh, it's not an easy road to travel. Again, if I had a pound or a dollar for every person who said to me they were going to start a bank, I wouldn't need to start another bank. Yeah, so 12 months is much more prosaic. It really is focusing in on growth, number one. So I haven't checked the numbers today, but 800 and something thousand customers. We should hit a million in September time. And 2019, we're targeting probably, I don't know, three or maybe four million customers at a stretch, which will put us comfortably, I don't know, is that top six current account banks possibly? So growth is a big one now because that the growth helps drive customer numbers clearly, which when you're building a two-sided marketplace, it's really important to kind of fix one side first so that you get the other side, all, all of these partners and say, do an integration to get access to 4 million yeah, customers. Absolutely. So growth is now number one priority. Second priority is, is working on revenue from unsecured lending to get us to cash flow positive. Mm-hmm. And that should, as I say, come late 2019. And then I think that's a really solid base to start thinking about internationalization in a, in a really serious way. In 2014, I was ashamed to be a banker. I felt that the whole industry was trying to put banking back together again the way it was before the financial crisis, and that was wrong. I think Starling, together with lots of other firms, are trying to do something which is fundamentally better, is fundamentally changing the financial services landscape. I think we'll do it. And I very much hope Starling has a big part to play in that. I see us doing what we're doing now um, across more groups of people, across more countries. 
And in five years or 10 years time, I'm hoping people will look at us, the people who started this movement and say that we actually change financial services forever. So if they do change the face of banking, or they have, in your view, will we still need them? Um, Oscar Williams Group had a great point that if they do change the face of banking for the better, then their job is done. But challenges will always be needed to call out big banks if they require it. I think it's probably better to think about it in terms of markets behaving cyclically. So at the moment, we need challenger banks because the big four obviously needed a bit of a kick up their ass. They got a bit lazy. There's a reason why challenger banks have been successful. There was obviously an itch that wasn't being scratched by the big banks. If the field gets leveled again, then potentially no, we, we won't need challengers. But in all likelihood, once the field gets leveled, some complacency will set in and you will then again need the challengers to come along and say, hang on a minute, you're not doing this right or you're taking too much profit margin in this this particular area. And so it'll go again. So, I mean, yeah, in a a weird way, the challengers will have done their job if they're no longer needed, because that will mean that all the inefficiencies and all the uh, bad business practices they spotted when they set out have been erased. But, you know, that also is probably unlikely because... No, no markets are perfect. <laughs> but I, I think it's an interesting point, though, because actually the companies who are set up as challengers, and actually you can argue somebody like Apple did this from a computing perspective. They came in, they were the challenger, and actually they, in sort of late 2000s, got stale, and it required leadership change again and, and real sort of a, a, a vigor around meeting customers' problems for them to come back to their best. So I think it's going to be an interesting one. When do we start seeing the challengers to the challengers, essentially? And what will we call them? Absolutely. So that was going to be my next question. If the current challenges do change the face of banking, will they become the new status quo and therefore just banks, no longer challenger banks? I guess so. Yeah. The, like, there's a whole naming convention here. We're going to have to figure out, isn't it? But you know, I, I do think though that 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 is bound to happen. You know, we we have to be in a situation where, uh, and it can't be that this isn't the old traditional incumbent banks are bad and new challenger banks good. Like there are great people and great ideas in all of these different places. It's about unlocking that potential. Um, But with every small organization that becomes a big one, actually the inhibitors around culture usually follow. You know, we see ossification of cultural processes leading to a real slowdown in innovation and customer centricity that actually leads to the challenges to the challenges. It is bound to happen. But I think we're a good 10 years away from that really happening in in full effect, if I'm honest. This episode was hosted by me, David Breer, written by Laura Watkins, produced by Petrit Berisha, and edited by Michael Bailey. Thanks to Anne Bowden, Anthony Thompson, Tom Blomfield, and Oscar Williams Groot. 
11FS, the people who brought you this podcast, transform businesses, and frankly, we get shit done. To find out what we can do for you, visit 11FS.com or email us on hello at 11FS.com. If we hooked you with this episode, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast client and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube for more exclusive content. Thanks for listening.